Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? Brought to you by Visit Houston. Become a Houston insider today from the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas. Here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Opie Amosu from the Chopping Block pop-up coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She is the owner of Avondale Food and Wine in Montrose. Mary Clarkson, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm well, Eric. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Before we dive into the news of the week, I should tell you that this segment is brought to you by Houston Insider by Visit Houston. Whether you love Houston or want to get to know the city better, this free program is right for you. Go to visithouston.com slash insider to learn more. All right, Mary, let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Chris Shepard is kicking one-fifth into what he calls the lightning round. Instead of having the same concept for 11 months, he is going to pull the plug on one-fifth Gulf Coast at the end of March, and then he will trigger a series of shorter one-fifth concepts, starting with Vietnamese food. They'll run for indeterminate time, maybe a few months, maybe less than that. They'll give you three weeks notice and then boom, they're going to flip to another concept, including possibilities include Italian with wood-fired pizza because that restaurant space has a wood-burning oven and a Houston-style American bistro with martinis. <laughs> Mary, let me, uh, let me just throw it to you. What do you think of one-fifth lightning mode or a lightning round. I mean, I think it's a smart way to keep people's interest. He's probably gone through the concepts that he thought would be the biggest draws. I don't know. The first one in the lightning round sounds pretty interesting, but it's a it's a good way to capture people's attention and and get the most number of people in there the last few months or year plus that he has the space. Yeah, he's got about 18 months left. So I, I will say... You know, on the success scale, I think it's hard to it's hard to beat uh, one fifth steak. Obviously, that was so successful. I think it that became was the number one for him. For yeah, sure. it became Georgia James. Uh, Mediterranean, maybe from a culinary perspective, has been my favorite. He says he's looking for a permanent home for that. Uh, I've enjoyed. I've been to Gulf Coast a couple of times. I've really enjoyed it. It's it's a little easier in the sense that. That is a style of cuisine that most Houstonians are very familiar with and that they can experience at other restaurants. And you can do small plates relatively inexpensively. Yeah, and they've done brunch with it. That's the first time they've done brunch at One Fifth. So, I don't know. I'll be, I'll be really curious to see how he puts his spin on uh, Vietnamese food. I feel like a Chris Shepard take on like some of the more elaborate dishes, like Beef Seven Ways could be super fun. Uh, obviously, he had a lot of success at Underbelly with that uh, Kasha Snapper. That was a big signature item for him. Mm-hmm. So he certainly knows that cuisine. Um, but but honestly, I mean, if I, I like as good as whatever the Vietnamese restaurant is, like we we don't know yet. Like, I'm just like, all right, let's let's cycle through that because I want the Italian food. <laughs> I want the chicken parm. I want the pizza. I want the lasagna. I want all of those things. That sounds good. Yeah, they, uh, making use of that pizza oven would be a shame not to make better use of that, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it 
that restaurant used to be Mark's. I don't think Mark's ever made pizza. No, but he made lots of good bread out of there. Yeah. So, but this might be the first time anyone's made actual pizza in what is essentially a pizza oven. It's an aged oven. It's ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Topic number two. We have a new location of the burger joint. This has been a long time coming. Super long. Like three years. <laughs> uh, but finally, it has arrived on the corner of 20th and North Shepherd. You know, there's never going to be like an exact explanation for what took so long. Parking. Uh, part of it is parking. <laughs> part of it is that the site used to be a gas station and there were tanks that had to be removed. Ooh, that's expensive. Soil remediation that had to be done. Uh, part of it is that the after Hurricane Harvey, the requirements for like water flow and, and flood prevention changed. Mm -hmm. And so that that took some time, even though the heights doesn't really flood. It, you know, it's just it, it was like one thing after another. <laughs> um, but the plus side is it is basically twice the size of the original burger joint it's huge the outdoor space is enormous yeah and it has 100 parking spaces which that's crazy the original burger joint has about 20 and it shares them with aladdin <laughs> i want to say like four no I'm just yeah kidding, but it right seems the joke like is that. it feels like four <laughs> it feels like four because you can never find one at a peak time so yeah it's um a bigger better batter burger joint uh they didn't really change the menu very much they added a, a full liquor license so you can get boozy shakes. And they are currently running a dry-aged burger with a patty from Black Hill Meats. That's mm. like their, their dry-aged trimmings from their steaks, which is pretty baller. I mean, if it's not broke, don't fix it. They're going to kill it here. That whole Shepherd Corridor in the Heights is booming. And I think they will do very, very well here. Well, let me just put it to you like this. Where does the burger joint rank for you? As a burger place. Uh, it's up there, but it's not my top, you know, two or three. But it's a great, for me being in Montrose, it's a great late night option. Um, for sure. I was actually just with uh, Alejandro from Anvil last night. And we we're like, where where should you go eat late night? And in Montrose, that's a real question. So if you want some good food, burger joints up there for me late night. Um, every day, I think it's really good, but I've got a top two or three that that are my my goldens. So Houston's and Papa's Burger are some of my favorites, and Langford's for old school. Yeah. Well, all right. In the corner of Westheimer and Montrose Burger Battle. Yeah. Burger joint or Shake Shack? A uh, burger joint. Okay. Yeah, I do like the crinkle cut fries from Shake Shack, and I don't mind the secret sauce. Like it's it's pretty good, and I like the bun, but I like I like burger joint better. Okay. That's I like, reasonable. I like supporting local too. So I like there's I, that. And I like the fresh cut fries and I like the vibe at Burger Joint a little better. Yeah. Shake Shack is like a drug. I mean, that secret sauce, they got you hooked. They know it. Well, and they're fun sized, right? They're just sort of snackable, <laughs> which helps. Uh, but yes, no, I think you're, you're onto something with the late night hours. The Heights location will be open until midnight during the week and 4 a.m. I'm telling you. On Friday and Saturdays. It. Well, and it's not even. Do they it's, do Uber Eats? Or they do. Okay. Oh, yeah. And they have yeah, dedicated live. parking spaces for to go at the new location. <laughs> so like all of the... Curbside, Carabas style? Yeah. Well, <laughs> all of the all of the drivers from all of the delivery apps, like 
they'll just be it'll be like a turnstile. That they'll just money be running in and out for of that, that place. fast casual category. I was talking with someone I won't say which business because they probably wouldn't want me to, but they own a pizza joint off of the Washington corridor and. The number, the thousands of dollars a week these guys do and to-go food is crazy. They'll do the same. Oh, yeah. No, it's a I, – I asked Sean Bermudez, the owner of the Burger Joint, about kind of where that goes for them. And it's it's not – I was like, it's got to be half, right? Because I just feel like I see a steady parade of delivery. <laughs> it's not. It's no. like 15 20%. But – Still pays your overhead. Oh, for sure. And it's it's a – yeah, it's an important part of their business. And then that late night crowd, you know, you you don't always think about it, but all of those bars down 20th Street, McIntyre's, mm-hmm. Drift that just opened oh up, gosh. Bungalow Heights, you know, all those people when they when they get out. Hangry. Yeah. One <laughs> o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, you know, not quite ready to go home yet. Uh, the burger joint is there for them. Way better than there's not a water burger nearby. So, you know. That, that's what I'd be doing. No, the closest Whataburger. <laughs> I, I, My number one drunk go-to. Uh, yeah, the closest <laughs> Whataburger is all the way like at 610 in Ella. Yeah. No. So that's maybe too far, <laughs> especially if you're heading back south, right? If you live in between. In I-10 between. Yeah. You're not going north. Nope. All right. Topic number three. Pie Pizza has closed. Sandbrook's management company announced that. Talk about a Friday news dump. That just, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that email comes out at like 3 o'clock on Friday. I, I think the interesting thing about this is that they had been talking about converting Pie Pizza into a new concept that they were calling Dobro's uh, that was going to have like some Chicago-style pies, maybe some deep dish. Um, obviously, that didn't work out. They've converted... You know, Sandbrook's kind of acquired other cherry pie properties. It turned Starfish into 1751 CN Bar. They turned Lee's Fried Chicken and Donuts into Sam's Fried Chicken and Donuts, changed the menu a little bit. Uh, and the plan had always been to do the same thing to Pie Pizza. Uh, obviously, that's not happening. I, I think what this means is that they realized that they, and, and Michael Sandbrook's was on this podcast not that long ago and talked about this a little bit. They have a hit on their hands in Candente. And I think they see an opportunity there to grow the Tex-Mex restaurant to more locations. And frankly, the pizza place is just not worth their time. So do you think they'll do a Candente in this space or they'll just sublease it out? Or Yeah, I think they'll, I think they'll find a new tenant for that space. Um, I don't know specifically what their plans are. I would not be, you know, they took that, that space had originally been Funky Chicken, Yeah, right? The Cherry Pie Hospitality took over and turned into pie pizza and so i don't know exactly what the relationships are in the lease terms and all that would sublease it well yeah somebody's gonna take that they're busy like 1751's killing it candente's busy yeah i mean that's a prime location on heights boulevard right near the walmart it will be a good size for a fast casual restaurant obviously Mm -hmm. uh chipotle's right there there's a poke works right there Uh, somebody some sort of national operator is going to want that space pretty fast i suspect I think that's a smart play. Lighten your load. Yeah, let me let me let me just one other aspect of this is that it seems like independent pizzerias have, have scuffled a little bit. <laughs> you know, Connie Rosso had two locations, the Montrose location closed, actually yeah. paving the way for Candente. Uh they're still in the heights. It, I don't know, like what is the 
Like, does this say anything to you about pizzerias? I mean, do you, I mean, you know, pizza modus like open and closed in the blink of an I eye in West pizza U? pizza modus too. Yeah. I, you know, I think people, I think Houstonians have a very fixed idea of certain categories of food. I think that applies to Tex-Mex. I think that applies to pizza and they're brand loyal. So if they already have a number one or number two favorite, it's unlikely, it's harder to get them to venture out as opposed to maybe mid-level or more, uh, you know, higher yeah, if end you're dining. A, if, you're a, if you're a star pizza person. Yeah, you're a star pizza person. Right. If you're a Pink's pizza person, you're a Pink's pizza person. It's hard to get new loyalty, I would say. And the market inside the loop, I would say, is pretty saturated. Yeah, no shortage of high-quality pizza options. Um, although there there have been a couple of interesting new contenders, uh, Gypsy Poet in Midtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bo Pete's and Pasta for every chef hall. So we are seeing some churn there, but uh, I mean, like I, you know, even like, I mean, I like Love Buzz, which is right down the street from Avondale. Yeah. Love Buzz does well. Yeah. They keep growing. I late mean, night. They, they do that late night thing too, I think. That's a big part of their business, but. I think it's also the quality of it. I'm, I was somewhere the other day and I'm not going to say where, but the pizza sauce was so sugary and the crust was burnt and i was like why did i do this to myself so you mary know. you gotta stop eating a domino's it's bad for you. <laughs> no it was a very prominent restaurant in my neighborhood so oh. um yeah uh so that's what i get for venturing out from my go-to go-to favorites don't do it <laughs> don't do it all right that does it for the news of the week we'll be right back with our restaurants of the week stick around you're listening to what's eric eating Love Houston? Join the club. Houston Insider is a completely free program built for Houstonians. Join me and thousands of others at exclusive events around the city when you take the 15-minute online course. Become a Houston Insider and get access to invitations to special events, sneak previews, giveaways, discounts, and more, plus weekly updates on what's happening in Houston. Learn more and take the course at visithoustontexas.com backslash insider. That's visithoustontexas.com backslash insider. Mary, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to talk to you about the new menu at Penny Quarter. Mm-hmm. This is the all-day cafe from Bobby Hugel and Justin Yu. You know, when it opened, I think they were kind of pitching it as a wine bar. I think they've, you know, they've kind of responded to customer <laughs> feedback. People, people want, they like that wine list, but they also want uh, more of an all-day kind of food experience. And still, so they've... Still Bobby Hugel. They want, yeah. the, they want their booze. Well, yeah. And they want cocktails. <laughs> yep. So there's there quietly has been kind of a comprehensive set of changes, both uh, in terms of personnel and menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should note that Sarah Crowell has left Cultivare and is now making the drinks at Penny Quarter. I love Sarah. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, she's really terrific. I know a lot <laughs> of people... Puts her in my hood. Yeah. She's one of our Tastemaker Awards Bartender of the Year nominees. Uh, it's nice to see her find a home. You know, she's she's had a long-standing professional relationship with Bobby, uh, going back to the days when she was the unofficial den mother of Anvil, <laughs> like back in the back that's in the a, very early that's days. That's a full-time job. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're kind of reunited, and then, you know, the Penny Quarter food menu is all produced on a food truck. So. But it has been expanded. There's more vegetarian items. There's more vegan items. Uh, we ate through, 
I don't know, maybe four or five of the new dishes. Yep. What did you like? I like the vegetarian options. Um, I'm going to be really honest. I think, you know, Justin is one of the best chefs in the city, state, country, however you want to say it. But operating on a food truck is a difficult enterprise um, for anybody, especially for the volume that Penny Quarter can do on any given day when they're busy upstairs and downstairs. So having more cold items, more vegetarian items is probably an easier thing to provide the level of service and quality of food um, that you want. And Justin's known for his vegetarian dishes. So I loved all of the new ones um, that we tried. And I think they're being very responsive to their guests and to the neighborhood. And I, I think it's a really smart move. Yeah, we had that beet salad. The beets were amazing. Yeah, the beets were really nice. I want to say, was there arugula in that salad? Am I remembering that right? I believe so, yes. And then we had that uh, spaghetti, not really like cacio e pepe, but kind of in that that very yeah. simply seasoned with the, in between, I those pickle slices. That was pretty tasty. Yeah, with the cucumbers. Still have all the, the toasts, avocado, cucumber. And I like the toast. I wish he'd use a little less olive oil on the toast, but whatever, that's just me. <laughs> But I like the toast a lot. And they kept that chicken sandwich, which is actually pretty killer. The chicken sandwich, when it's good, it is straight fire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then just from your professional perspective, what do you think about that wine list? I really admire Justin Van. I I think the wine list is is a good list for the neighborhood. I think he has roughly 100 wines, give or take, um, on any given printing of that menu. And, you know, I think... I think it's a good spot for wine. I love our neighborhood for wine. Um, I think the addition of Sarah with Spritz Cocktails, I use this place as kind of my go-to office when I'm not at Avondale, but I see people that come in there that you know want to have a cocktail option that they don't have to come up with on their own. So if they're presented with one, I think you know maybe they start with a glass of wine and then move to a cocktail or vice versa, but having both options I think is, is going to really help them. Well, and also later at night, right? If you, yeah, you know, if it's your, if it's your last stop in the night, or it's your, you know, it's after dinner. Maybe maybe you had one with dinner. Maybe you're ready to switch to alcohol. You know, having a a more diverse seasonal cocktail menu that all sounds pretty reasonable to me. Uh, we should mention that those glasses of wine are half off. I think from two to five every uh, Monday two through to Friday. Two to no two to five. Tuesday through Friday and all day on Monday. <laughs> it's a good deal. It's a great deal on my, I, I mean, you can catch me there probably two to three times a week. It's, it's a beautiful light filled space during the day and it's got a great vibe at night too. But I personally will be happy to be presented with cocktail options that I don't have to think of because 95% of the time I'm drinking wine here. And then I just want to talk a little bit about my trip to Las Vegas last week. I had the opportunity to hit uh, some new-to-me places. Did you find Elvis? I did not find Elvis. <laughs> I did find Secret Pizza in the Cosmopolitan, a uh, little slice joint up on the third floor. It's not, it's not that secret. Uh, it's just it's like slightly, it's, it's unmarked and it's down a hallway. But if you, if you know what you're looking for, it's very easy to find. Um. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with, like, everything Everything in Vegas is twice as much money as you think it should be. So, sure it is. So to get a slice and a Pepsi, and for, for whatever reason, everything in the Cosmopolitan was Pepsi, 
screw you, Pepsi, screw <laughs> screw you, the Cosmopolitan, for giving that to them. Uh, but to get a slice of a Pepsi for ten bucks was a pretty good deal. A um, couple other places I got to hit: uh, Lotus of Siam, the James Beard Award-winning mm. Thai restaurant, like Yum. arguably the most famous Thai restaurant in the country. Um, it's hard for a restaurant like that to live up to expectations, did but it? absolutely it did. You know, garlic. And, is it and on I the went strip with, or off the strip? It is off the strip. Yeah, it's right. on Flamingo Road. Yeah. Um, it, this is the new location. So they, okay. they had a location in uh, Chinatown that I think they're renovating still. Okay. Uh, but this is the new location. It's, it's right down the street from Lowry's The Prime Rib and Fogo de Chao, which <laughs> is like kind of hilarious as you're, you know, in the, in the taxi, like riding down the street to this place. Um, and I went with the greatest hits, right? Um, you know, steamed Chilean sea bass mm-hmm. with ginger, garlic chili prawns. You had a beef dish that looked amazing. Uh, a cow soy with crispy duck. Okay. Oh. And, and a beef tartare that was spiced like a uh, northern style larb that was fiercely spicy, but very delicious. Um, have you been there? I want to say I was at their old location. I certainly haven't been to their new one. Yeah. It's been a few years. I mean... It's. I think it's hard for a restaurant like that to live up to its reputation, and yeah. it absolutely, it absolutely exceeded my expectations. And I don't, I don't understand why we don't have Thai food like that in Houston. But if somebody, if somebody knows where I can find Thai food <laughs> like that in Houston, uh, Eric at culturemap.com or slide into my DMs <laughs> on Instagram or something, tell me because I will eat there, and I will tell people about it. Uh, and then, uh, just briefly. I got to go to Sedel, Sedel's. Have you been to this in New York? No. It's from the major food group. Uh, you know, they have Dirty French. They have the yeah. grill. They have Carbone. So I love C- Carbone. So Sedel's is kind of their, it's kind of their take on Russ and Daughters, like the, the dairy side of Jewish cuisine. So nice. uh, smoked fish trays, mm. uh, bakery items, and then, you know, like, but of course it's turned up, right? For both, in both New York and in Vegas. So a lot of caviar. Um, I went with, uh, you know, lox and bagel and then uh, a pastry basket because I read that they have this massive dough room where they, they make all these lemonade yes, doughs. Yes, please. I had the, the chocolate babka of my life, like the, the <laughs> chocolate babka that redefines chocolate babka as part of my little pastry basket. So that made me really happy. And then I got to go to Major Domo Meat and Fish, uh, David Chang's new steakhouse in the Palazzo, uh, obviously based on his restaurant in LA. I've been to the LA one and it is very, very good. Yeah. So we were a group of nine, including my uh, Gal Media colleagues, Fred Fowler, AJ Hoffman, and Nick Sharara. So we so when you're when you're in a group of nine to get the the three bone plate short rib as an appetizer for the <laughs> table becomes a more reasonable decision. It's probably like a four pound hunk of meat. Uh, they slice the table side to make it easier to eat. And then they take the, the trimmings from the short rib. They turn that into fried rice. And oh, since wow. that was the appetizer, I had room to have prime rib as my entree, which they smoke with cherry wood uh, before roasting. It is extremely, uh, it is extremely tasty. It is, uh, again, everything is more expensive in Vegas. So, you know, your prime rib at Houston's is about 40 bucks. This was 95, but hey, it comes with the cream spinach and the mashed potatoes. And it was a hearty, a hearty, hearty portion that I would say two people could split, especially if you, if you went with the apps, they have a whole raw seafood thing that I couldn't get anybody else interested in. Um, And we were too full for dessert, unfortunately. 
Uh, but my first time at a David Chang restaurant, and again, like I was very excited to dine there. Uh, I've watched Ugly Delicious. I listen mm-hmm. to his podcast almost every week. So I was excited about the chance to dine there, and I was very, very pleased with my meal. Hey, your demo was great in L.A. I mean, David Chang, don't miss an opportunity to try his food. Yeah, maybe someday, maybe someday we'll get a Momofuku or a major domo here in Houston. I take a Momofuku. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Clarkson, what's going on at Avondale Food and Wine? Well, uh, by the time this airs, uh, we will have completed our AR Lenobe champagne dinner this Wednesday. Uh, we're really excited to have that. But uh, coming up April second, April second, sorry, a Thursday, we have Drake Whitcroft from Whitcroft Winery in Santa Barbara. I was just out to visit him in October. One of my favorite younger winemakers, highly respected, really exciting to have him here in Houston uh, doing a family-style dinner with us. So that'll be on the 2nd. And you're now doing crawfish and Riesling every Sunday on the patio. Every Sunday. And the spice is really good. It's uh, orange and garlic-based. The seasoning doesn't stain your fingers, and the heat kind of dissipates after 10 minutes. It is so good. All right. Mary Clarkson, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. I'll be right back with Opiumosa. You're listening to... What's Eric eating? I'm joined this week by Opie Amosu. He is the founder of the Chop and Block Pop-Up. Before I introduce Opie, I should tell you that this segment is brought to you by Houston Insider by Visit Houston. Go to visithouston.com slash insider to learn more. Opie, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I mean, you are like the you are like the breakout star of Marcus Samuelson's uh, No Passport Required Houston episode. And I want to talk to you about that, but... Oh, man, I don't know. Jolly, jolly. Oh, that's true. Very big deal. That's true. (laughs) Uh, But they... uh, But before I do that, let let me kind of start at the beginning. I mean, how did you... How did you become interested in the restaurant business? Um... You know, honestly, for me, it's restaurants has always been a thing I've been interested in just because it's a way my family fellowship growing up um, had a big family. And, and that's just kind of what we did every Sunday is we were always out at restaurants. And that was just kind of our form of uh, of, of getting together. Um, but really, I quickly came to realize that restaurants were also a good place for people to be exposed to, to new things. So, um, you know, a little bit about myself. You know, growing up in the Houston area, I actually lived in Sugarland, but spent all my time in A-Leaf, Southwest Houston. That's where you find a lot of the Nigerian community. Um, and, um, you know, for me, having that affinity to my to my culture was something that was was always there until I started to get older and older. Right. And started to get further and further from home. Um, so fast forward, you know, I'm living the corporate life, traveling around the world and uh, come to find out that the older I got, the harder it was for me to get kind of the access to my culture, the foods I grew up on. And um, I saw a lot of places, especially when I was living in, in the East Coast, um, a lot of places with kind of strong immigrant communities were able to showcase the beauty of their culture through a means that everyone accepted, and that was food. So I think about concepts like kava with uh, the Mediterranean food out there in, in, um, in, in the D.C. area um, and, 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 and different concepts like that. Um, but then you walk into those places and that's not necessarily the demographic that you only see eating there. And I always had the question, I said, why couldn't we have something like this for my culture, something where I don't necessarily have to go out of my way to get access to the things that I grew up and I love. And um, ultimately it dawned on me in, in January, 2017, 
that, hey, how about we go ahead and build one of our own? So a contemporary West African-inspired fast casual restaurant concept. Right. Um, so so you, you're you moving fast, and, and I appreciate it. But, but just, just so people are clear, what was the corporate, like, what was your corporate, like, post-college job that you were doing before you, like, made this decision? Yeah, absolutely. So um, working in sales, I have a, a commercial background. So uh, straight out of school, went to school up in Missouri, played football up at Truman State University, came back to Houston and got a job working for a wholesale sign supply company that was looking for someone. They're based out of St. Louis. They were looking for somebody who wanted to come to Houston and help revitalize their Houston branch. And honestly, I didn't have that many tickets back home. So I was like, all right, I'll take that one. Um, so that brought me back here. I spent about two and a half years working there. And it was cool because it was a, a small business opportunity to wear a lot of hats. And I knew that I wanted to advance my career and go to graduate school. So um, two and a half years later, I enrolled and went to Rice and went to get my MBA at the business school over there. And then coming off of that, I started working a corporate job over at GE in their uh, experience commercial uh, leadership program. So for about three years post MBA, um, I lived stationed out of Philadelphia, but lived in various parts of the world, spent some time in Dubai, kind of operating in the Middle East, um, in Latin America and Argentina, um, but home base was, was Philadelphia. And so that's where I started to see a culmination of this same feeling, regardless of where I was in the world, kept coming to me. So no night. So, so a lack of Nigerian restaurants in, in Philly, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's the same story. Like if you want a Nigerian or a West African influenced, uh, restaurant here, you got to go to Southwest Houston. Philly, you had to go find it. When I was living in Dubai, I had to go all the way to Dara by the airport to go and get access to it. And it's just your, your, your traditional immigrant story. That's usually where the immigrant population is. So by nature, that's where you find the food. Yeah, I I mean, I have to admit, like, you know, as someone who grew up in Houston, you know, obviously I know uh, Akim Olajuwon, right? Like arguably our, our most famous uh, African immigrant. But you know, I didn't think about the fact that there was like a broader Nigerian community and, and it's pretty substantial. I mean, I I've done some reading about this since I met you. What, what do we think about a hundred thousand people? Maybe? Oh, it's more than that. It's more than that. Houston is the largest uh, West African population in the country. Um, and you hear different numbers, hundred thousand, 200,000. Obviously these are the people that decide to report, um, you know, what their, what their status is. But um, you know, it's, it's, it's bigger than that. I'd say we're looking at at least, two to 300,000 um, alone. So, I mean, it's a big market there. And um, I think by nature of it, you brought up, you said something that really struck me was I had the same thing, right? I grew up going to private school out here in Houston and often I didn't have people in my class that looked like me, especially those that had the same type of last name like me. So for me, I always thought that my community really was, obviously we were close knit, but I didn't realize that it was as big as it actually was, right? I had to either go to you know family and friends houses or different functions to see my community but outside of that didn't really see it as prevalent as now i see it today well and there are i mean there have always been or maybe for a while there have been a couple of restaurants but primarily they catered to that community right they didn't they weren't seeking kind of the a broader audience absolutely absolutely i always say there's it's kind of a rule of ethics or a code that you have when you walk into these places and these establishments. And I think, you know, uh, for, for a lot of time, we have not necessarily um, done it to where it's as inviting to other cultures who may not necessarily be familiar. And that's just from an education standpoint. You might go in there and not necessarily know what to order or just overall, you know, just just kind of the way that we view or he, the way hospitality has been shown 
in certain aspects, it doesn't always translate to the way hospitality has always been shown in the Western world. So absolutely, you do have your staples, your cornerstones that are still in town today, uh, like Safari. Um, obviously, people always throw out finger licking and those are going to be here to stay. But I think, you know, it's time for also a contemporary play on that same type of cuisine. Right. So then talk a little bit about kind of developing the chopping block concept and how you kind of balance like you want those authentic dishes, flavors, but also making it where it's maybe more approachable for people who don't have a background in it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the big thing that we say is the purpose of Chopping Block is to show the is to share the beauty of West African culture through foods that reshape society's daily routine. So when we think about that, we say, okay, well, we want to make sure that the dishes and the foods and the offerings that we create are some are, are able to translate across the spectrum, regardless of where you're at in this journey of discovering our food, discovering our culture. So when it comes to recipes, um, I got to give a shout out to our team here, especially Bethany, who's uh, kind of the head in the kitchen for us. Um, but she's uh, she's what we call our culinary creative. Um, she does a great job and we kind of get together and we say, OK, let's think about not just dishes that we grew up on, but just different things that have influenced us or that have been synonymous with the culture. And then that's where we say, all right, well, for example, I'll take our trad bowl and I'll dissect that dish a little bit. Trad bowl is our most traditional bowl. It's the most common bowl. It's the most popular bowl. That's why we call it the trad bowl, trad for traditional. Um, but it incorporates the most traditional dish that you'll usually see or that's synonymous with West African food, which is a rice called jollof rice. Um, so when we came to kind of understanding which version of jollof rice we wanted to make, because jollof rice is started in Senegal, um, it's... Every single West African country has their rendition of it, has slight variations. When we started to think about, okay, what type of jello rice do we want to create? We said, all right, well, we know the best cooking happens with the home cook. So let's tap into the community and see which home cook is known for making the best jello rice. Um, we got with that, with that cook and um, ultimately she showed us her interpretation of how she makes jello rice in Houston relative to how she grew up making jello rice and she's from Nigeria. So she makes a Nigerian rendition of it. So as we did more research, we started to find out, well, jello rice is really something that people can relate to because it's just a smoky or a tomato based rice dish. Right. So, you right. Have, so essentially if you've had jambalaya, exactly. Right. That, that, you know, I mean, that's, and, and obviously this was a no passport required, but these are the, the relationship between African cooking and Southern cooking that like Johnny Rhodes is exploring at Indigo. I mean, you can kind of, you can make those same connections for people. Absolutely. So that, yeah, that's exactly where I was going, right? It's a precursor to modern day jambalaya. So then we thought about our rendition of it. We said, okay, well, we love the fact that the Nigerian nature has that smoky element to it because that comes from how it's usually made with firewood outdoors and a big cauldron or whatnot. Um, we want to keep that element to it, but also we want to strike a chord with thing with the, with the rendition people are familiar with. We're here in the South. How about we combine the two together and create a jell-off jambalaya? So it's going to have the t a lot of the elements of the jell-off rice, but then you're also going to see some non-traditional elements that a, a West African may not include in there, such as the mm -hmm. uh, smoked turkey sausage, the peppers, the onions that you actually see raw kind of cooked in there. Um, so that makes the foundation of it. And then usually when you go to eat our foods, there's often things that you may pair with it, um, but there's really not like a, a, a traditional way that things are always, you know, this always has to go with this dish, right? So our thought is, well, 
how do we make it easy for someone who might not be as familiar with it to enjoy the flavors together? And so that's when we started putting the pairings and kind of creating this kind of bowl vibe where you have in that dish, you had the jell-off jambalaya as the base. Stewed plantains are a must. So we throw stewed plantains in there. Um, we often cook our food, our meats, our proteins on the grill. So we have some grilled five spice chicken on there. And then lastly, we want to do something a little different, right? In my opinion, a lot of times in West African cuisine, we don't eat enough regular vegetables that you see here, right? So we decided to go ahead and add some um, Brussels sprouts and cauliflower. But instead of just doing traditional Brussels sprouts and cauliflower, um, we add a street spice, which is a spice that we call suya spice or yaji spice. It's a peanut pepper spice that's often put on meats. But we thought, hey, how about you put on some hearty vegetables? And now that bowl encompasses so many different flavors, so many different elements of the culture. And you don't have to do too much thinking in order to you know, enjoy it. I mean, it makes this cuisine that that it, it to the extent that people might be intimidated by something they're not familiar with, it makes it super approachable because it just it's like these are the greatest hits essentially, right? All in all in one bowl and in, and in a really approachable way. Absolutely. I mean, we always say you eat with your eyes before you eat with your mouth, right? So we want to make sure that it looks approachable, looks appealing, looks like something that is intriguing, might be different, but also looks like something that's somewhat familiar. So it's a goal of marrying that all in the mix so that people who may not be as familiar with the culture see it as something that they want to try. Right. And then you do some other things that are kind of rooted in like seminal African dining experiences, right? Like that meat on a stick is, is like a, like a really important experience for people who have traveled to Africa. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, I think a lot of countries, especially when you leave the U S and you, I mean, you can kind of see it in the U S too, but street meat is a hit, right? That's a lot of times it's where you get the best food. Um, and it's no different in, in West Africa. Um, you know, one of the first stops that most people, when they go back home, I'm going to call Africa home. When they go back home, they want to get is uh, street meat suya, which is meat on a stick. It's usually often uh, served in Nigeria and, I think on that episode, they, they talk quite a bit about suya, but that's that peanut pepper spice put over uh, grilled meat um, over hot coals and everything tastes very great. Um, we do a rendition of it that takes a lot of Ghanaian flavors on it. So we call it roadside steak. Again, meat on a stick, but now you're going to taste a lot more ginger tones. You're going to have a slight sweetness from the brown sugar as well. But that's more kind of an aim towards the Ghanaian style of cooking, the Ghanaian style of cooking versus necessarily the, the Nigerian style. Right. And I think that's the that's maybe the fun part about chopping block is you're not just you're not just wedded to any one country. You can kind of pull from these different traditions. Yeah. The boundaries that are established today are somewhat artificial. Right. They, they weren't necessarily like that before a lot of the colonization occurred. And so, you know, it's been a journey for me. I, I grew up in a Nigerian household. And honestly, for that point, I only was really familiar with Nigerian cuisine. But. I knew that there was more that the other countries had to offer. And so as we continue to do more research and understanding, okay, what dishes are essentially the same and just have different names? And then what dishes are there that are actually different per each country? And how can we take some of those elements and sprinkle them into what we're trying to create? Right. So like, so what are you learning? Like what, what's been like your favorite dish that now that you've started this journey that you didn't know existed before? Oh man, I think a lot of the the Ghanaian the Ghanaian flavors from Ghana, I mean they're they're killer, right? Um a lot of the ginger tones in Nigeria, we cook with some ginger but not as heavy on the ginger. Um so seeing how that just kind of amplifies some of the certain dishes um has been great. Um also, you know, one dish that we've been working on and we'll see, you know, if, when it finally comes out to light, but um in Senegal, yassa is huge. 
um, yasa is is, is uh, proteins, oftentimes fish or beef or chicken, um, cooked with um, a medley of onions, and they throw some mustard in there and just kind of saute everything down and use it as a glaze on top of these uh, different meats, and it tastes beautiful. So just seeing those different types of dishes and kind of getting a bit of a nostalgic flavor profile, but then also some newer tones just makes things that much more interesting. All right. So let me, let me shift you slightly, right? You're, you're developing this food menu, but you're, you're also an MBA. So, so how are you growing this business? How are you building awareness? Uh, what has that process been like for you? Yeah. So uh, we want, we're very intentional about how we're doing it. Um, and I think that's, what's been helping us to get the momentum that we've been getting. Um, I mentioned that this idea came in January, 2017. Uh, prior to that, my only experience in a restaurant was working at Ruby Tuesdays while I was playing football in college. <laughs> um, but understanding that that wasn't going to be enough. Right. So um, spent a year uh, actually working as a prep cook at night um, along with my day job at Chipotle, just trying to understand how concepts are built, how things work, how things are forecasted and ultimately, you know, getting that experience at the very ground level. Um, and so having exposure to how food culture is in other parts of the country and even outside of the country, um, you know, when it came to taking that next step of, okay, you, you, you've kind of thought this through, you've been working on the business plan. Um, how do you start to test it out? Um, from a corporate background, hey, we always have pilots, right? I'm from, I, I, my background's in oil and gas. And before we sink a lot of money into a major investment, you test it out with the pilot, right? So that's how these pop-ups came to play, um, we right. said. Right. And, and just, to, just to emphasize something that you just said, you have a corporate sales job in oil and gas. And so just because you believed in this concept, you, you went to work for Chipotle for like nine bucks an hour as a prep cook. Like, ten bucks, ten bucks. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. I, I didn't mean to short you. Uh, but you didn't, you didn't do that because you needed a second job. You did that because you wanted an experience. You wanted some real world experience in this, in this world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was the guy who a lot of the high school um, employees were probably like, I never want to be like this guy when I grow up. Right. Cause I'm <laughs> over there washing all the dishes. You know, I had the prep job, which is honestly the low man on the totem pole. Um, but my perspective on what I was doing was completely different. I just didn't share it with them, but yeah, you know, so like doing that and then kind of getting to how we start and doing the pop-ups was, well, let's go ahead and get our food in front of people and see what they think. And so, you know, looking at just the different, um, customer segments or customer profiles that we're trying to attract, we said, how about we launch, how about we launch a private intimate dining series where we invite 10 guests um, who we think represent these various market segments. The goal ultimately is to start to get to people outside of our immediate networks. Um, but let's invite these 10 guests and we ask them to bring 10 people. So we'd have 20 people have these really cool dining experiences, seem somewhat exclusive, but honestly, they're really used to help us get that feedback on the dishes that we're creating, see if they resonate with them just like they do with us. Um, it was cool because we started doing those. People were giving us feedback, giving us a lot of consumer behavior in terms of like where do they spend their money for lunch, where they spend money for dinner, how much they think we should charge for this meal, what are their thoughts on the different uh, items that they're tasting. But at the same time, it's like, okay, once we get that information, we love you, but we don't necessarily have another opportunity for you to come back and engage with us. And so we ran that for almost about a year, um, running about 12 of those dinner programs. And we said, well, if we're building a following along the way, how do we continue to keep that following engaged as well as the demand people are getting? It's like, when are you going to open a restaurant? When are you going to open a restaurant? So we said, all right, well, how about we 
do other things that we've seen, especially in the Northeast. And and let's go ahead and open up uh, a dining experience for a, a broader uh, group of people to to enjoy. And um, that's where the pop-ups came to play. So that's when we said, all right, we're going to start doing 100-person pop-up dinners. Again, sharing the beauty of the culture, add different elements in it. We want it to truly be an experience. But we're trying to also create some level of nostalgia for folks who may not have grown up on this food. Um, and so everything has been stepwise intentional. And then that's where a lot of... I guess more eyes have been aware uh, of what we're doing is just really through this, uh, this dinner experience that we've been, been, been launching. Well, and, and the, the, the intimate dinners, there, there were two things you did at those that I, I thought were, were really interesting. Uh, the first was you, you made everyone promise to give you honest feedback. We all, we all like sat in a circle and took a pledge. Absolutely. And then the other thing you did is you, you gave, you know, you pay in advance, but there was an envelope with the money that you had paid and people had the option to to like leave that for you or to take back if they didn't feel like they'd gotten their money's worth. And I, I think that's pretty ballsy. I mean, I don't like how many people like took, like did most people just leave the money? Did they take some out? Like, like how did that go? Uh, I think I would say for the most part it balanced out. Um, but our whole thing is we want it to be completely risk-free. One, we want you to show up. So that's why we took your money up front, right? Oh, no, you have to do that, <laughs> for sure. We had to make sure you showed up. But we also said, okay, hey, forget about the price. Like, we just want your honest feedback. And honestly, it's not about your money. So here's your money back. We gave it to you in increments so that you can give us whatever you want, right? Different denominations that way. At the end of the day, you decide you're only going to give us $7, you give us $7. You want to give us $37, you have it in there as well. Um, but ultimately, that just kind of took all the bias away from us. And we wanted to make sure we earned your money. We want something something that, you know, we felt like whatever you're putting in the envelope is truly how much you value. And the good thing about the correlation is now you can look at what the average price people wrote down for what they think we should charge for this food and drink is relative to how much money we were actually seeing in the envelopes. Right. And if you want to correlate that, you can say, well, you know, is it right on? Is this that price plus tip? You know, you can make different types of interpretations on it. But um, no, absolutely. You know, that was all by design. But you put that out there, Eric. We don't give people their money back anymore. So when you come to, <laughs> <laughs> when you come to our dinner experiences, I think we've got that data point. So uh, people do come. They pay their money. They don't get their money back. <laughs> However, um, we have not yet gotten someone who said they have not enjoyed the experience or thought that they pay way more than what the experience was worth. All right. So you're now doing these. 100-person, like, restaurant takeovers, essentially. How often are you doing those? Um, so we do them roughly about every other month, and it's not necessarily designed that way. Um, we've just been itching on testing new things. Um, and so, you know, as we kind of think about what we want to test or how we want to make these slightly different, um, just happen to have been falling where you'll find we were doing them, like, about once every other month. All right. So then where are you on the path to, to making this a permanent restaurant? Oh, man, I think we're close. Um, we've actually been approached multiple times and had different offers on places. Um, the cool thing is the pop-up wave has been really good to us, and it's just getting us even more attention. So to be honest, we don't feel the pressure of we need to be in a place tomorrow. However, we have gotten some solicitations, and we are continuing to entertain different solicitations for a brick-and-mortar because that is the absolute goal is to create something that's replicable in a brick-and-mortar setting. All right. Do you still have a day job? I still have a day job. I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the first things when I talked to uh, a mentor of mine, I said, OK, I wanted to go ahead and try this out. Uh, he said, don't quit your day job. Hold on to it for as long as you can. 
And just by the nature of the way that we're designing this thing, I fortunately not had to cut that stream of income quite yet. Um, but trust me, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm making sure that, you know, once things are positioned to move forward with the brick and mortar, things on the home front are also well taken care of so we can make that next step. All right. So, so you're, you're talking to real estate developers, you're, you're being pitched opportunities. Do you have a feel for kind of where, like where in the city you would like to be? Yeah. So the vision has always been to be in or near the loop. Um, and that kind of goes to what the whole purpose of what we're trying to create is. Right. So we don't necessarily want diners to have to necessarily go out of their way to get access to this food. We want to have the food be where they're currently in their own daily routines right now. Right. So we look at places that are near the loop or inside the loop as prime real estate for us. Um, and that's honestly all the discussions that we've had up until this point are continuing to put us in that patch that we want to be in. And you're thinking like a standalone restaurant as opposed to like a stand in a food hall, for example. Um, well, actually, I would say I wouldn't shut the food hall aspect down because um, that is also a good next step. And honestly, some of the stuff that we've looked at does also go in that um, does go in that range. Um, but I don't necessarily see that as a super long term uh, approach as well. Right. So. Yeah, when we're when we're looking at where we really want to be, um, it is it is a standalone, a place where we can create our own environment, create our own experience, educate the way that we want to educate. Um, food hall may be a stepping stone to get there, but we're definitely not shutting either one of those out. Yeah, I mean it's 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 working for people, uh, you know, uh, like Christine Ha right went from Blind Goat and just signed a lease to take over uh, what used to be Beavers off of Washington Avenue. So it it you know and and I know. Uh, I mean, Ben McPherson was on the show. He's got Bo Postet bravery. You know, he's looking for, he's looking to grow that and and plenty of other examples. So. Yeah, and I think I think you look at you know the folks at Bravery and just kind of the amount of time that they're committed to staying in those in those uh, in those locations. Um, I won't be surprised if you start to see more concepts where a food hall post essentially is what you see with Dish Society, right? A food hall post is really just another avenue to allowing consumers to have access to your product but that doesn't shut down what they're trying to do from a brick and mortar standpoint as well they might operate obviously they'll operate differently in those arenas but i think you'll start seeing more of that as well where folks who do have a food hall stand also are operating traditional brick and mortars right or it gets you into a neighborhood where you know you may not you may not want to pay rent in rice village but but you want access to that market and so Halton Row makes sense for you, just as just as one possible example. Right, right. Good example. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, all right. So, so we've talked about the food and the development of the concept. I, I have to ask you about no passport required. Obviously, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Um, how did you? How did? How was that opportunity presented to you? I mean, how did you? How did they approach you? Man, when you say something fell into your lap, I don't know if this uh, if there's any other better illustration for it. But I would say um, big shout outs to. The other folks pushing the culture here, uh, especially Michelle uh, Cavacci over at Safari. I got a phone call from her and said, hey, hey, the producers, are you familiar with, Mark, with Chef Marcus Samuelson? The producers from his show um, reached out and they're going to be coming out to Houston, wanted to meet with a few concepts because Houston was selected as one of the next cities for uh, for the upcoming season and no passport required. And um, so I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm interested. So, um, you know, she uh, she connected them connected them with us. Apparently they had been hearing about us and they were just trying to figure out who the point person was. So, you know, obviously um, 
you know, once we got in touch with them, um, you know, we were all gung ho about it and just wanted to make sure that we did the best to represent our city and represent the culture. And I think, you know, the, the episode itself, I thought was very well put together. Um, different nuances I see in there just because I'm so close to the culture. I'm like, oh, that wasn't completely accurate. But for the most part, I think, you know, if you need a crash course one on one on West African culture, West African cuisine in Houston, it doesn't really get better than that. Well, and I, and I, I feel like I've started to see, you know, people I follow on Instagram, like they're going to these restaurants that were featured on the show. They're checking it out. I mean, this is, it, it feels like a little bit of a watershed moment in the sense that it's opening people's eyes up to what exists and, and what the potential is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and that's just one, that's just one, um, one thing that's doing that. I mean, there's so many other aspects of how the culture is becoming a bit more prevalent or a bit more accessible to just your general consumer than you would have seen five, 10 years ago. Uh, some people call it the Wakanda effect. So I don't know if it's really from Black Panther. But. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I, I mean, just like, you know, I think, you know, uh, Crazy Rich Asians kind of made people take a look at, you know, Singaporean cuisine, maybe that they hadn't thought about. I, I, I do think uh, I do think Black Panther has kind of sparked an interest in African culture. Yeah, I think it shows it in a different light. I think, you know, there's not up until that point a lot of big, um, you know, things that you could point to that would put the culture in a more progressive light like Black Panther did. Um, if right. You look a a at, positive depiction of sub-Saharan Africa, like in popular media, like I like I don't know. I, you know, it's always, it's always like a movie in a war torn country, right? Yeah, yeah, like that's not an, or, or people like on a safari, like it, there's gotta be. Right. Or we need your donations or whatever, right. right. All that type of stuff. And to be honest, like that's not the life I live when I go back home. That's not the life my family lives back home. Now I'm not going to lie. That does exist. But just like a lot of countries, especially developing countries, you see a big, um, a big span of how different people live and operate in those different societies. Um, and Houston is, is, is really a big market for where you see West African culture just kind of out there in the open. And maybe you just might not have been as, as, as able to realize that at front. But I think we opened up the podcast talking about Hakeem Olajuwon being a major sports figure and, and big shout outs to the dream. Like he did that for us. But now if you look at who was the last NBA MVP is, they call him the Greek freak, but yeah. there's no Greek name named Ante Tacumpo, right? It's Ade Tacumpo. He's Nigerian. He's Yoruba, just like me. Um, you look at a lot of big sports figures, same thing, music, you know, different things of that nature. Like a lot of things that are pushing pop culture um, are not that far away from West Africa, West African heritage. Uh, so, you know, I do think just by the nature of economy, just by the nature of where you see the migration trends happening, you're going to continue to see as time goes on these cultures are going to start to become more and more influential just because there's more people, it's more prominent. And honestly, we want to welcome others to enjoy what we've known about for quite so long. All right. So did you get to interact with Marcus a little bit? Did he give you any advice? Oh yeah. He gave me some advice. Um, you know, we still shoot texts and so on, but, um, you know, absolutely. You know, he, he believes in what we're doing, um, which is, you know, if Chef Samuelson is telling us that what we're doing is, around, is is on the right track, then I feel pretty good about that. Um, and he's also kind of gave us some advice on how we take what we're doing and in, 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 in making the next step um, with that as well. So those are some things that we're keeping in mind. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, we've had other uh, quote unquote influential people, especially from our cultural background, who have been 
kind of co-signing what it is that we're doing, um, you know, regardless of what your socioeconomic status is now and so on. Um, that pain point, especially in the West African community, um, spans to everyone, right? We're all looking for a positive representation, a progressive representation upon ourselves that we can each relate to. So fortunately, different people as they've been coming through Houston, musicians, comedians, um, folks that, you know, a lot of people here on the phone, uh, on the on the podcast might have heard about, um, you know, they're fortunately kind of giving their stamp on, on the block, swearing the chopping block, and it's just been good to us. Yeah, no, I think I think that's really exciting, and and I will you know use this opportunity to publicly thank you because you invited me to that dinner at Cafeza, um, so I got to meet Marcus and and I got my I got my little forty five second clip in the episode. I was uh, I was Eric knew I that was episode really was not going to be complete without him. They had to make sure that the <laughs> the voice of Houston food gave that final stamp to make sure. Well, we were it's all a good. it's a funny sort of thing, right? Because that that like that wrap up dinner at the end of an episode, it's like such a staple of like no passport required or, uh, you know, no reservations for Anthony Bourdain or even like an Andrews Amern show. And so that like, so, you know, we're filming it and I, I've watched enough food TV. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be the last scene. And, <laughs> and so to be, to be the one person who gets to be the authority and like the food writer, they're like, Oh, you know, tie it all together for us. And, and I, I mean, I think, it's you, like, did, I think you did a good job. It's Eric. a professional thrill. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, cause you never quite know what you're going to, you never quite know what you're going to say or how it's going to be perceived. Thankfully I've gotten some positive feedback from it. Uh, but so thank you for inviting me because it, it was a lot of fun for me. Absolutely. And when we thought about, you know, who we wanted to have at that dinner, ultimately, um, you know, we were just thinking about people who've kind of been on that journey with us along the way. And that wasn't the first time you dined with us. So that's why you were also a prime person for us to think about is, Hey, let's, let's have Eric back. And obviously Fendi is, is someone who, uh, was on there as well. He's the former NFL player, grew up in, in A-Leaf, Houston as well. And actually he's Jolly Jolly Bakery. That's his family right there. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of those people around the table made a lot of sense to have. Arif made a lot of sense to have. So um, just great to see that support. And we wanted to make sure that those people who've been pouring into us had a great opportunity to dine with, with Chef Marcus. Well, I have to say that brings me to the end of my questions. Uh, is there something that you wanted to discuss before I, I send you home with the lightning round? Yeah, so there's something I don't say enough about. Um, Eric, ask me about the name. Oh, <laughs> that's a good point. Opie, why did you name it Chopping Block? Yeah, so um, Chopping Block, right? We talk about the, the concept kind of being that cultural crossroads. And um, when you think about West Africa, there's so many different... Uh, tribes within the various countries and in those tribes that's where a lot of the native languages and tongues come from right and so you have so many different language being spoken um, but the one language that we kind of all speak across the region is a broken English called like pidgin English kind of like in the Caribbean how they speak patois um, and in that language the word chop means to eat right so chopping block or it's the block or the location that you go to to eat now if you don't have a West African background you see chopping block, it's already synonymous with food. You know, you think about meats, you think about cutting, you know, firewood and so on. So that name within itself kind of spans regardless of where you're at on that cultural spectrum. You do insinuate, you do, uh, you know, correlate it with, with food, but it does have a lot of cultural context behind it as well. Awesome. All right. So I always, I always wrap these interviews up with the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. All right. Opiumosu, what is your what is your favorite ingredient? 
favorite ingredient, man, I would say um, atarodo, or a lot of times that's referred to here as like chili, like uh, habanero. So we cook with a lot of habanero, scotch bonnet peppers. All right. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Uh, new edition. Um, my parent, my mama took me there. I guess she wanted to see the concert, so she she <laughs> dragged me along with her. But yeah, we saw a new edition over at the summit. All right. Who is your? I, I feel like I well. We've talked about a couple. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? All right. So, obviously, everyone's going to say, like, oh, Akeem Olajuwon. Absolutely. Big shout-outs to the dream. But, you know, I really thought about this. And my favorite Houston sports figure has to be Mad Max, Vernon Maxwell, with the Houston Rockets. That is a fantastic answer. I, I, I love those Rockets teams. Mad Max was awesome. Um, all right. And then uh, what is your Fast food guilty pleasure. It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Man, it's a place I don't go to enough, but shout-outs to Frenchie's. Frenchie's off of, uh, off of, off of OST and Scott and, um, and Third Ward. The original, absolutely. Yeah, I tape a monthly segment uh, for Houston Matters on the UH campus. And if I when I have the time, like if I don't have to be back at the office like real fast, uh, Frenchie's is definitely a lunch option. It's it's on the radar. You, know, you can never go wrong with Frenchie's, especially the King Special. <laughs> All right. And then uh, finally, when you go to a pizzeria, what are your go-to pizza toppings? Oh, man, if it's the first time, I'm going to keep it really simple. Only topping that's going on there is pepperoni. All right. That's it. Give us the website, social media, all that for Chopping Block. Yeah, so you can uh, check us out. Uh, social media is on Instagram is at chopping block that's c-h-o-p-n-b-l-o-k underscore um we're also active on facebook and we invite you all to check us out on our website chopping block that's c-h-o-p-n-b-l-o-k dot co dot c-o um and that's how you can actually register to attend one of our future dining experiences so i'll go ahead and announce right now um march 28th is what we're working on for our next dining experience love to have you guys come out it's going to be one of our really cool series our afro bad series bad stands for brunch after dark so think plantain pancake cameroon pepper short ribs fried chicken uh atarodo spicy syrup all that good stuff but more importantly you get to learn about the culture and you get to have you know an experience that you don't usually have access to in the houston area Ooh, yeah i'm i i may uh I mean, just sign up for tickets myself for that. There we go. There we go. All right, Opie, <laughs> thanks for being here. No, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Eric. All right. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Arena, and Google Play. As always, I appreciate your comments and feedback. But like Katie Nolan says, only if it's five stars and only if it's nice. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.